talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Who is calling this a sixth wave? And did I miss the fifth? When fully vaccinated, any future wave is just a ripple. Here's Scott Thompson! Hang on there, Dr. Kurt. We're going to answer some of those questions today. Uh, yeah, and by the way, I uh, you're the first to know. You're the first to know I booked my booster shot today. Um, the only reason, thank you very much, Will. Weber's on the board. Um, you know, and uh, uh, I don't know why. I just all of a sudden thought I had. it's time to do so. And I was scheduled to do it uh, back in December, but then uh, I got COVID. So they said, no, you can't have a double shot. That's going to do some damage. Uh, so you basically have to wait three months. And, you know, you hear a lot of people talking about how oh, there's only 50% of the people that have got their booster. It's because they can't. You're supposed to wait three months after you have it to get your booster, which is about where I am, maybe a little bit more. Uh, my wife got hers uh, last week. So, um, you know, uh, we are where we are because that's the way it's it's transitioning. So, it, it, you know, um, anyway, that being said, uh, uh, we'll find out. We'll try to find out what is the fourth, fifth, and sixth wave. And, and, and I asked that question of an expert we had on yesterday, and she laughed. Um, so again, I, I think it's really, really important that we try to dissect this and, uh, we certainly will. Have I started the show yet? Uh, it is, uh, 309. It's Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, Will Weber on the board in the newsroom, uh, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Uh, you can join the conversation. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900, uh, on your cell. Uh, all right. It was, uh, also, I was talking about, uh, booking the booster it's like okay you know what I, I should do this it's you know my wife's done it blah 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 it's been the three months uh i'll, I'll join the line i'll i'll pick a, I'll, I'll hold on to the rope and um and and it was it was very easy to do and my shots for friday so i could have gone today but it would be i'd have to leave at 4 20 and uh, i'm not sure the boss would be happy about that and I think Radley's done enough heavy lifting for the last week. So uh, anyway, so it's next. So you can you there. It is available. You can get it if you need it, uh, if you uh, are ready for it per se. Uh, and again, uh, I've done it. Uh, did it twice. Then got it, and then getting the booster. And uh, again, I think something we really have to remember in all of this uh, is that we are in a much, 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 much different place uh, than we were uh, during the first wave when we didn't have any vaccines, and then we're like six months behind everybody uh, in the industrialized world getting those vaccines. So, uh, but in the end, that shortage of supply and increased demand uh, led to an extremely high vaccination rate. I was checking this morning, eighty. Uh, 85% those five plus, uh, and then it's, uh, I think, just about 50, 48% with the booster, and well over 90% of those uh, adults that are, are fully vaccinated as well. So that is what sets us up for um, uh, hopefully surviving through whatever the, you know, we're going to talk about something next year, it'll be the 15th wave. 
Um, you know, and again, I, I, when uh, I was off for the week and then I came back and people are talking about six wave, it's like, you know, I know I unplugged for a while, but when was, uh, when was wave five? <laughs> you know, I thought four was Omicron, which hit around Christmas time. So anyway, uh, the discussion is ongoing, and we'll try to uh, wade through it all. Dr. Richardson's going to be joining us a little later on, uh, Hamilton's top doc, to, uh, to, to, to keep us abreast. But again, what you have to remember is that it's extremely transmissible, uh, but it is not as deadly as previous. So you still have to take those precautions, and you have to be aware. I mean, it's, 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 it is what it is. Um, um, anyway, we'll try to decipher between what it is and what it isn't coming up a little later on in the show. Another passionate speech from... Um, uh, you, uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky uh, today, this time to the, U- the UN Security Council, of which, uh, you know, their motto is peace and security, but Russia's a member. So anything the UN Security Council votes on, Russia can just veto it because it has to be unanimous. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's bizarre that here's is President Zelensky uh, pleading for help, uh, including peace and security, from an organization in 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 which is that that's what they sell and russia's a member of this and and of course Zelensky, uh very passionate speech and and a stern one as well asking these questions such as why is why are these guys this guy allowed to to participate in and have veto at the u.n security council so here's a portion of what ukrainian president Zelensky had to say to the u.n security council earlier today there is not a single crime that they would not commit there. The Russian military searched for and purposefully killed anyone who served our country. They sh- killed, shot and killed women outside their houses when they just tried to call someone who is alive. They killed entire families, adults and children, and they tried to burn the bodies. Uh, the voice of a translator, uh, the president of Ukraine, uh, Zelensky addressing the UN Security Council earlier today. And obviously, we've heard that uh, Ukraine has been putting up an incredible fight and and actually pushing back the Russian uh, troops. The Russian forces have become exhausted. They're retreating. Uh, and it looks like they're going to, they're reloading. They're, they're going to replenish, reload. They're going to rest because they didn't expect anything like they've, you know, encountered. And then they're going to go in and take what they feel that they can. I mean, that's, it looks like that's the way that this is, is going. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, you know, Zelensky's pleading for more ammo. I mean, I think he's come, uh, he's aware of the fact that, you know, they're not, no one's going to invade the no fly zone. Uh, but giving him the equipment that he needs to, to, uh, to keep this going is, is, or to survive more like is what is needed. And as we have seen these Russian troops, uh, uh retreat, per se, or regroup, uh, the carnage that they have left is just um, war crimes, end of story. I mean, the brutal uh, assassination of citizens, tying them up, torturing, murder, rape, it's... It's 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 all it's all there. I mean, it's it's like uh, atrocities of World War Two here. So um, you know, uh, again, this retreat, as positive as it may seem, or it may just be the calm before the storm to come, uh, has just revealed all kinds of atrocities. That uh, it's going to be fascinating. And during this speech to the UN, Zelensky played imagery, and we've all seen it. Uh, but the imagery that we've seen over the last 24 hours, and it'll be fascinating to see the impact that this imagery has and how it 
hopefully will change things uh, moving forward. As we are uh, hopefully coming out, the uh, you know I don't want to. Hopefully, uh, we've learned a lot from the pandemic. Let's just leave it at that. As we come to the latter stages of it, it becomes an endemic, whatever that might be. Uh, we remember during this pandemic how it uh, greatly exposed uh, weak links in our healthcare system, and you know these were weak links that we knew. And the healthcare industry has been talking about this for decades now, uh, it appears. And obviously, you put uh, everybody's healthcare system under enormous pressure with a global pandemic, and and those weak links are exposed. And for the longest time, uh, we we've been praising. We're so busy praising our healthcare system, uh, and we should be the healthcare workers that are in it, but we're failing to realize that there are issues that need to be solved. And as we come out of the latter stages of this pandemic, uh, how do we make sure that those problems are addressed? Uh, not only for future pandemics, but for getting uh, the system where it needs to be just to function in whatever normal conditions are. Uh, to talk more about the Ontario Medical Association's view and changes they'd like to see, let's bring in Dr. Rick Titus, Chair, District 4 of the Ontario Medical Association, Associate Clinical Professor, Department of Family Medicine, McMaster. And with us now, Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks for asking. Actually, I just recovered from COVID, so... Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. So that just speaks to the fact is that we're in the sixth wave of, of COVID. So COVID is still here. We're not uh, endemic. We're still in the pandemic mode. Help that since you brought it up, doctor, uh, clear this up for me because I thought Omicron coming at Christmas time and, you know, therefore January, whatever, that was the fourth wave. How did we get to six? <laughs> Well, you know, we don't have enough time on this show, but uh, invite me back in another year. We'll be on the ninth or tenth wave. <laughs> oh man, I hear it. Because honestly, I was off for a week, and then I came back, and we we're and I somehow I missed a wave. Uh, but anyway, uh, obviously, obviously, um, this has exposed issues uh, that were there long before uh, COVID nineteen. Are you concerned? How concerned are you that now we are where we are, and whether that's you know wave whatever uh, that we're losing focus on where we were? Were and the discussions we were supposed to be having around uh, around healthcare. And again, I know you were with the Ontario Medical Association, but this is virtually something that is countrywide, east to west, left to right. Uh, uh, the Premier of, of BC was launching, uh, you know, at one time a few months ago, um, uh, discussions into this with all the other premiers about something needs to be done to somehow fix the system. What is the thought of the Ontario Medical Association? Does it include a broader scope outside? the province as well well we're trying to focus obviously it impacts all canadians um at the ontario medical association we're focused on ontarians and uh what we did was in 2021 we did a survey and we surveyed you know 1600 doctors we we surveyed allied healthcare workers we we surveyed uh, uh the the patients or the people of ontario and and some of the uh, some of the focus was that the agreement was that we have to deal with healthcare now. We understand, yeah. we appreciate there's going to be a cost connected to it, but we're, we're willing to, to bear the cost now because there's issues we need to address. For example, there's 21 million medical services that have been delayed because of the pandemic. 
21 million. So if our hospitals were working at capacity, or let's say over capacity, 120%, it would take 32 months to deal with the backlog. And, and that's not even considering the fifth and the sixth and the seventh wave of COVID. So right now we are underwhelmed and our, and our patients and, and the people of Ontario, the people of Hamilton are underserviced. Uh, lots of it, it seems that this the discussion that, that we're having right now it's moved from this to uh, focus on pharmacare, dental care, and ten dollar a day care. And I don't want to lose the focus of our discussion here. But again, it, it seems that we're losing focus on what we have to concentrate on here. Yeah, these are all important issues. But what absolutely, tell, like Scott, what do I tell my? I'm speaking with my patient today. Uh, Vola and I and I was asking her. And she was asking me, "When am I going to get my knee replacement?" Yeah. And so they they have the target acceptable target times. So in in Hamilton, if you live in Hamilton, we're forty percent over the expected target time that's acceptable to have your knee replaced. So we're above the provincial average. But what people don't realize, what my patients don't realize, that before I can make you that appointment to see the specialist, and when you do see the specialist, your waiting time is going to be 40% longer by the time you get surgery, just because we live in this region, I have to send you for an MRI. Well, how long will it take you to get an MRI? Again, in this region, we don't have enough MRIs. So the the accepted wait time is longer here. So one issue compounds another issue compounds another issue. How, how, what is, and we've only got about a minute left here, doctor, what is the, the, the short-term solution to this? How do we get through the next year of this, especially with the backlog? Uh, well, you know, it, it's, it's not an only uh, a short-term solution. We're trying to do the hospitals doing an amazing job. It's all hands on deck. Uh, but also, I, I think one of the solutions moving forward is getting a, one of these integrated ambulatory center so that maybe we don't have to go to the hospital to get your knee replaced or your mm. hip replaced or your cataracts or endoscopy. So we can we can build these centers and these centers will provide us the great service and the hospitals. What the hospitals can do is they can focus in on the complicated patients, on the complicated issues. This freeing up space. Do you think we'll have these discussions? Well, this is the opportunity to have discussions because, Scott, there's an election coming. Politicians are listening. So this is our opportunity. Dr. Rick Titus with his chair, District 4 of the Ontario Medical Association, Associate Clinical Professor in the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster. How do we get the uh, healthcare system back to where it needs to be after a global pandemic? Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. And you too. And don't forget, invite me back after the 10th uh, pandemic. I'm going to take you up on that, Rick. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Elon Musk now has controlling share of Twitter. 
What does that mean? What happens next? How surprised are you? Let's bring in Daniel Limes, Managing Director of Equity Research with uh, Wedbush Investments in the U.S. and is with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. You're great to be here. Thanks. Daniel, are you surprised that Elon Musk bought 9% of Twitter? Look, I think no one was expecting that Musk was going to be a corporate raider for Twitter. So, you know, in terms of a surprise, of course, but again, with Elon, you know, the surprise is never sort of out of the question. I think when it comes to Twitter, social media from a platform perspective is clearly an issue for him. I mean, he's talked about freedom of speech, and it's really become sort of an initiative. He wasn't going to build it from the ground up. Twitter, it was the right time. Dorsey's stepped to the background to really go in aggressively. Now on the board, clearly he's going to really drive significant change at the company. I remember it wasn't that long ago. Many um, many internet uh, experts thought that, that Twitter's days were numbered. Then, of course, Donald Trump comes into the picture, reignites that. Then he gets kicked off. Um, and again, many thought that it would subside after that. But you said it is a good time to buy this. Look, I mean, the best thing that ever happened to Twitter was Trump, you know, from yeah. a platform perspective. The, the irony is that he's gotten kicked off, as well as other controversies, plus TikTok and other Instagram have gained more and more share. I mean, Twitter's really, you know, sort of, I'd say the next level down as a platform from subscriber growth. So, you know, investors, you know, from, from a knight in shining armor, it's really Musk. And that's why the stock's been up massively the last few days. Because it's clear one way or another he's going to enact change, whether that ultimately results in an acquisition or going private, which potentially could be on the table. But obviously front and center is going to be how the, what are the changes? Does that mean it's going to be more of an unfiltered platform? You know, obviously, like, there's a lot of questions. That means Trump comes back on Twitter. You know, so these are, these are now some of the sort of lightning rod situations that Musk, as well as Twitter, is going to have to navigate. Uh, you were talking earlier about issues around freedom of speech with Elon Musk. What do you, and, and, you, and you kind of alluded to this, but what do you think an Elon Musk Twitter will look like? Well, I think that that's the big question. I mean, is it going to be a lot more unfiltered, you know, in terms of ultimately, you know, a lot of accounts have been suspended. Some others haven't, right? So, I mean, it's, you know, it's right now Twitter as well as other social media platforms, they're right now really have a bullseye on their back from both sides of the political spectrum, left wing, right wing, right? So Twitter and for Musk, it's going to be a balancing act because the last thing that Tesla investors want or SpaceX investors want is to then have Musk be on the retaliatory side when it comes to a political perspective. So it's going to be a tightrope. I think from an investor perspective, there's a lot of things they could do to drive subscriber growth and advertising. But clearly, it's hard to argue when Musk, anything he's touched has basically turned to gold. And that's sort of the view among Twitter investors. Well, you know, Daniel, you just said it. I mean, he's got SpaceX, he's got Tesla, especially with SpaceX, my goodness, uh, you know, in the headlines, uh, doing, uh, going beyond the frontier all the time. Why is he interested in, why is he interested in social media? Why is he even interested in Twitter? Like, is this an ego or a good cool. business investment for him? First of all, I think it's less as a business investment. I mean, this is not him doing this to make money. 
Yeah. I, I, I do think this is more, it's a personal initiative that at least in his mind crossed the line. And when you're the richest person in the world, when something, you know, if the bank takes your house, you could buy the bank. So yeah. that's sort of the scenario right now for Musk is that he wants to enact change. And look, Twitter, they've kind of capped him in a 15% ownership stake because if he wanted to, he could buy the whole company himself. Yeah. Do you think we'll see that? I don't think he'll buy it because now they've restricted. Yeah. But I do believe right now they're playing nice. It's it's arms open. If Twitter's bored and internally don't cooperate with Musk, you know, then eventually this could go down a nastier path, which could lead to some sort of acquisition, private equity, and, and, and others. So I think that's why, for the first time in a while, there's optimism at Twitter it's because of Musk. But now, just like you're asking, over the coming months, what are those changes? That's going to be the question. Uh, is he trying to be more of an influencer, um, being more political, or is he just sure, fighting? Or is he just fighting for truth and justice here? Look, no one knows that except for him. But I mean, obviously, eighty million Twitter followers, probably most followed individual in the world, maybe globally. So he doesn't need any more influence in that mm. way. But. When it, and also, when it comes to the freedom of speech in some other areas, it's as we all know, it's a you know, it, it's a it's a very tricky area because as Musk inserts himself into that area, there's a lot of unintended consequences. So right now, I could tell you, I've probably been asked ten times from investors, "Is he going to let Trump back on Twitter?" Hmm. Now, as a Tesla investor, the last thing you thought of forty-eight hours ago is that you're going to be getting asked if Musk is going to let Trump back on the Twitter platform. It just shows in the world of Musk how things could change quickly. What does this do for users to the platform? Is this huge publicity, massive increase, massive ad revenue increases just with this alone? No, I think it really doesn't change at all for now. I think the biggest thing is going to be how the platform changes in the coming months. Yeah. Because with Musk on... He doesn't necessarily play nice in the sandbox. He's not just coming on the board just to check the box. He wants institute change. And now the question is how that's ultimately going to be for the platform. Look, and then obviously from a political landscape, I mean, Twitter, you know, on both sides of the aisle really puts themselves in a, under a further bright spotlight. But Musk knew what he was doing. It was a calculated initiative. And that's also why Twitter brought him onto the board today, because rather be a friend than a foe of Musk. Daniel Ives with us, Managing Director of Equity Research with the Wedbush Investments in the United States, talking about Elon Musk now owning a controlling share of Twitter. Fascinating discussion, Daniel. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We hear more and more uh, the word populism or populist or populist politics being used uh, in the last little while. 
especially in the Donald Trump, post-Donald Trump era, it seems. And, um, and, and usually it's used to refer to the right, but uh, sometimes to the left. Or what does it even mean? And is it a good word or is it a bad word? Because in a lot of situations, the way it's used, it's used in a negative light. Let's bring in Stuart Press, professor of political science, Simon Fraser University, and he is with us now. Stuart, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. Uh, I am. Thanks for asking. So, Stuart, what does define populism for us? What's the definition? We define it in different ways, but one way we define it in in, pol- in political science these days is it's a it's a kind of ideology, but we'd call it a thin centered ideology. So it's a it's a way of looking at the world, but it's one that doesn't have a, a single core. Instead, it attaches to different kinds of political sensibilities. So, just as you were mentioning, you can have ideologies of the left or ideologies of the right that are populist, and in the sort of the, the unifying idea is that there's sort of a, a group that would be the people, then the people are generally good. And then there's some elite out there that is that is bad or, or negative or corrupt or evil. And it's about trying to restore power to, to that the, the good people and, and take it out of the hands of the elite. Politics for the people, basically. Um, and, and usually low-hanging fruit that gets your attention or Quite just often, appeals yes. or just appeals to the masses. Well, it's certainly an attempt to try to appeal to the masses, but a particular group of people, uh, those who may feel like they are left out of the current political system, that uh, the, 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 the normal parties, the normal way of doing business has left them behind. It, it offers them nothing. And so, and so it's another way to describe it is it's, it's a critique of the system as a whole and the old ways of doing things. It's not a, a party, a populist party or a populist politician is not going to advocate simply a, an increase to a tax level or a slight decrease. They're going to say that there's something fundamentally wrong with the way in which everybody approaches governance, and they're going to do something different and better. And it's often quite simple, disarmingly simple. So you can think of Donald Trump campaigning on the idea, we're just going to build a wall, and that's going to solve immigration problems in the United States. So is it a good word or a bad word? It is neither good nor bad. It will tap into the idea that there are people in any given political system that they really do feel like they're, they're not seen, they're not heard. And the fact that populist leaders, that they're able to tap into that sentiment can reflect the, the, the reality that, that there is something about the way politics is being done in a, in a, a country that, that, it, that is missing a part of the population. So it can be kind of a warning signal for the, the political system. But one of the problems with the, the political uh, leadership or the, the idea of a political party that is uh, populist is that it is going to recommend these these really simple solutions to what are in, in reality really thorny, really difficult questions. And so we see appeals to, to uh, populist sentiments in Canada around the idea of freedom, restoring freedom to the people. But of course, freedom is always going to be relative. One person's freedom is going to potentially impose mm-hmm. on somebody else's liberties. And so, so it's, it's easy to say, we're just going to give freedom back to the people. But doing so is, is a much more complex matter in reality. Is it used? Are we hearing it more to refer to the right nowadays? In recent years, yeah, we, we there are there are left of center uh, populist movements. We have them in Canadian history. So the forerunners of the NDP, like the the CCF, another party uh, of the left, was clearly a populist party. But nowadays, we tend to see it most often, um, uh, most vocally on, on the right of center. And we see that in in Canada. We see that in uh, the the People's Party of Canada, Canada, led by Maxime Bernier. We see it in the United States, uh, the, the the Republicans under Donald Trump, and we also see it in Europe, in places where the there's a, a strong appeal to sort of a, a national sentiment, a, an idea of who are the, the real people that matter in politics. And, and it often ends up trying to isolate those who, who are perhaps on the margins of society. That is one way that right of center uh, populism can go.
is, for example, the statement tax the rich, not populism. A tax the rich, it can be very populist, and that would be a kind of movement we would see more on the left. So when we think a few years back now to, say, Occupy Wall Street, that movement, which was very much built around taxing the 1%, without a, a really clear, uh, coherent sort of, uh, set of policies about how would they go about doing this, what, what kinds of concrete reforms should be introduced, that's a, that's a good example of a left-of-center uh, populist uh, uh, campaign, one that focuses on the, sort of the, the elite to be opposed is, is the business class, the, the wealthy in society. The right of center populists are, are more often to target government itself as the elite, the problem. Um, I'm going to ask you another one because I'm, I'm trying to lead with example here. Uh, chastising the last 10% who are not vaccinated while 90% of the population are. Is that populism? Uh, that one is, is a little more complex. I don't know if it's, it's exactly populist. It, it is in, in many ways appealing to the views of, of, of a majority who feel like they're, yeah. they're following the rules, that they are actually the ones who are within the system. And the problem when, when you're chastising those others is that you are, uh, you're, you're trying to, well, you're focusing on the attention on those who haven't been following the same sort of norms and rules that, that, that the rest of ha- has been. Those who argue that it is everyone's individual right to, to choose whether, whether, whether to be vaccinated, whether to wear a mask or not, and, and to do so in the midst of a pandemic when the health of, of those around uh, each of us dependent on the choices made by others that that's a, a more stringent sort of appeal to to a, a very simple idea of freedom which you might describe as populist would the uh w- would populism be a very 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 simple way of explaining a much more complex problem uh, a populist appeal generally speaking yeah it, it really yeah. tries to to simplify politics into uh, very black and white terms. So, so the, the people are good. That's always the starting point. That if, if we could just yeah. do something to to liberate the people or, or to to help them free themselves of the influence of, of some negative influence out there, whether it's coming from government or coming from big business, the world would be better off. And it, it is it tends to be a, a quite a simple solution. So all we need to do is clear away government regulation, or all we need to do is is, is tax the rich and, and and return the money to to the everyday people. But but of course, doing so is is very much easier said than done, and will often create new problems along the way. Uh, we've only got a few seconds left, Stuart. But how do you explain the divisiveness in this country? Uh, it's, it's a good question, and it does seem like we have this real divide between uh, a majority of the population that uh, tends to to see politics as as being part of some sort of uh, often described as progressive uh, project where people tend to agree on things like we need a certain amount of gun control we need to do something about climate change we we need to take seriously threats like a pandemic and and then on the other side of the ledger somewhere on the the right of center uh, uh, there's this sense that uh, trying to impose restrictions on the choices people are making is just uh, is unfair and unjust and really what we need to do is stop trying to set up these rules and people just want to be able to 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 make their own way in the life in their lives even if it's not paying attention to those larger social issues that that affect us all and that seems like the divide right now the divide runs right through the conservative party and we're seeing leadership hopefuls like pierre polyev essentially choose a side in the divide in which direction do they want to pull that conservative party to one side of the divide or another Stuart Press with us, Professor of Political Science, Simon Fraser University, talking about populism. A great conversation. Thanks for the time, Stuart. I'd love to chat again. Be well. My pleasure. Anytime. Where are we as uh, there's chatter of uh, a sixth wave? I swear I don't know what happened. I slept through the fifth. I, I'm not sure when that happened, but that's another question we'll ask uh, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. She is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
Thank you. I am, and I hope you are as well. Yes, thanks so much. So help us out, doctor. Like, honestly, how, how, I thought, you know, I got the Omicron thing around Christmas time with the family into, you know, and then I guess that a lot of people got it into January. I thought that was the fourth wave. How did we get to the sixth? Where was the fifth? Well, I think that's been the challenge is trying to differentiate the different, um, you know, waves, wavelets. We've used different terms for them, resurgences. And so, you know, different people are using different terms at different times. But I think what's most important to know right now is we are experiencing a resurgence of COVID-19 transmission. Whether that will prove to peak like a wave, you know, uh, remains to be seen. But certainly we had forecasted that we would get a resurgence as people um, hmm. do, uh, you know, change their behavior after the recommendations have changed and the extent to which that, uh, that resurgence increases. That's what we're waiting to see and what we're continuing to follow. You use the term wavelet, which I thought that's 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 pretty cool. It's sort of like a ripple, but um, you know, I, I think what people have a hard time understanding, and what I'll try to get you to elaborate on, is um, of course this is a massive uh, concern because of the spread and such. But we're at a very different place, and this is encouraging us all to. By the way, getting the booster on Friday, there, doctor. Um, but uh, uh, but you know, are we at the same place? How do we how do we how do we navigate this wave as opposed to the others what's the difference doctor yeah this is this is where we're getting to in terms of you know learning to live with COVID-19 and manage with it and so you know overall what we're doing is we, we do want transmission to stay you know on a lower level but the most important things we're looking at is the severity of this and so are we seeing increases in people being hospitalized there's sick enough that they need to be hospitalized are we seeing increasing uh, cases that are in the intensive care unit and need that level of care. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, sometimes we do also see deaths, of course, associated with COVID-19. And so we're really looking for how severe this is. We know it's going to continue to circulate. It's going to continue to be in Hamilton for, you know, probably years, maybe longer. Um, But we need to continue to take those steps to protect ourselves against those severe outcomes. And so that's where vaccine comes in and is a significant protection. And so glad you got your booster because we know with these Omicron variants, that third dose of vaccine for most uh, people, some need even a fourth and people in long-term care homes, retirement homes, people who are immunosuppressed, they require a fourth dose of vaccine. And Ontario today did announce an expansion to that fourth dose booster program for people who are over the age of 60. And so that's helping to reduce the risk for people who are at higher risk because they're older or have an underlying condition that puts them at risk. The other thing is we now have treatments that are out there. And so those treatments can also, if started early in somebody who has COVID-19, they can uh, make the difference in terms of hospitalizations as well. And so knowing your own status and talking to your primary care provider, your family doctor, your nurse practitioner, whoever it is on your care team, if you have, um, you know, some other medical conditions, talking to them about whether or not you're eligible for treatment and where could you get that treatment. Um, And knowing that in advance is really important, too, for those that are at higher risk. So as we navigate through this, we also just have to think about our own circumstances and how we you know, manage this for ourselves because those um, severe outcomes do sometimes happen in otherwise healthy people and, um, you know, decide what's best in relation to the people that we, we live and work with. And so we know there are other vulnerable people who are out there. So at the current time, you know, given the level of transmission where we've got, you know, our case rates have been going up, our hospitalization rates have gone up and now they've kind of stabilized a little bit. Our wastewater has done the same thing, peaked right 
up or come right up and then stabilized a little. We're definitely recommending that people continue to wear a mask when they're indoors. Um, also to consider physical distancing, but this whole concept of I can take on so many risky situations before I'm, you know, I'm really putting myself at risk or people around me. And so what do I need to think through for each of those situations? So thinking about, you know, is it indoors? Is it well ventilated? Um, is there crowding indoors? All of those things are really important when we think about what sort of situations we might go to. We know there's a little slower uptake on the booster. I'm thinking a lot of that has to do with so many have had it. They're waiting to get their booster. Is it still three months from the time you're infected to you should get a booster if you've had the first two uh, vaccines? What is the, is it still the same? When do you get boosted if you've had it? Yeah, that's exactly it. That if you've had the, had, uh, COVID-19, then do wait that 90 days to get boosted. And we do think that's part of why people are delaying their booster doses or their, the kids as well. We know the uh, rates for first and second doses in that group have kind of uh, stabilized around that 57% mark. And so, again, we think that's because a number of kids did get COVID-19 through this last wave. And so they're you know, waiting to go forward um, and get past that three-month three waiting period. So uh, only got about a minute left here, doctor. Uh, delayed procedures, we certainly know that. Uh, and, and you've had to move staff around to, to handle this pandemic and such. Uh, obviously, trying to move back to normal, does this delay that? What can you tell us about those procedures that were delayed and, and staffing and such to, to get hospitals back to where they were? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is a the very delicate balancing act that's going on in the hospitals where they're trying to maintain enough capacity should their the number of hospitalizations go up, um, but also try to get some catch-up done on those surgeries. And so working to prioritize those surgeries to make sure the most urgent ones get done first. They are being impacted right now by the increased transmission of COVID-19 as well. They've got, you know, higher numbers of people having to be off because they're sick or are, um, you know, have had somebody in the family who's sick. And so that's uh, certainly impacting them as they try to go forward with that that catch up as well, but they're they're working on it, and that's another good reason for you know, keeping that those levels of transmission down in our community, and making sure our healthcare system can continue to work for all of us. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson with us, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time and clarification. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's get an update on where we are in Ukraine and uh, the rest of the world as a, re- as a result of that. General Wayne Iyer, Canada's chief of the defense staff, told a committee of senators Monday that the invasion of Ukraine has, quote, caused us to face the most dangerous time in the world in what I would argue is generations. And we have to continue to be prepared for what may come. Let's bring in Christian Leprec, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute. He is with us now. Christian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, good afternoon, Scott. Always a pleasure, and it's a nice day to have this conversation. Yes, and General Eyre, um, always being articulate as he is, uh, weighing in on trying to change, I think, both the minds of uh, the public, but I would have to think a couple of days before a federal budget, also perhaps uh, implicitly trying to make sure that uh, federal politicians and uh, the political executive have their eye on the ball in terms of what awaits us. Obviously, as you mentioned, Thursday, the budget does come down. However, in the last 24 hours, 48 hours, we're seeing some very 
horrific images as uh, Russia retreats, reloads, whatever it's doing. Uh, and the uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine gives a speech today in front of the U.N. Security Council playing some of those images and a very stern conversation about where's the peace uh, and security here and asking why Russia is even a, a member. The question is, Christian, these images, we remember way back as far as the Vietnam War when these images can greatly change public opinion. What do these new images and these allegations and what we're seeing of war crimes here, and I don't even use the word allegation, um, how does that change public perception? What does this, this all mean? Yeah, there's a couple of interesting dimensions to this. I think none of us, unfortunately, were surprised, and I suspect there'll be more atrocities that will come to light. Uh, as uh, Russia vacates space and uh, Ukrainian um, uh, authorities are able to retake control uh, over some of their uh, their own territory here. I mean, as we've talked before, this is unfortunately Russian military doctrine. If you look at Chechnya, you look at Syria, gross human rights abuses. But I think the two dimensions I think here that are telling is that in military sociology, we often say that the qualities of your military reflect the qualities of your society. And so it's no surprise that, you know, we have a military that's replete with corrupt bureaucrats, corrupt contractors and corrupt soldiers. Um, and I think it's also a manifestation of the fact that this is a battle between values, where in the West we have a predictable rule of law and what we get in Russia is the complete arbitrary application of the law in whoever has the power decides what the law and what the truth of the day is. And that also applies not just to the macro level of Putin, it also applies at the micro level. That's because that's the message that the soldiers are getting. Whoever has the guns, whoever has the power gets to do whatever they want. Um, and so I think that's uh, that's what we're seeing here. But President Zelensky, the very astute communicator that he is, I think sees an opportunity here. Why the UN Security Council and why now? Because, of course, um, a majority of the members on that council have not taken a stance when it comes to Ukraine. That includes all countries in Africa, all countries in South America, and most of the countries in the Asia-Pacific region that are not solidly in the Western camp uh, and his Western partners. And I think President Zelensky here sees an opportunity to send a message to those countries that you have to take a stance, that it is clear that this type of behavior is unacceptable. This is no longer just about an invasion and a gross violation of the sovereignty of another country. This is now about a country engaging in precisely the sort of atrocities that in the 1990s we established by international norms were unacceptable and that people have to be brought to trial for. So I think this is it's not just about a war crimes investigation. It's about trying to sway the minds of the majority of countries in the world that have been sitting out this conflict. So will these images be a turning point? Uh, I think it will be a turning point on two fronts. One is that it makes it morally increasingly difficult for countries to sit out. Um, and so the, the need to take a stance here, but of course, taking a stand here also means for many of these leaders who themselves engage in human rights abuses against their own populations, uh, that this they are also driving international law and international norms here. So I do think in terms of international perception, because you don't have to sell most populations on the idea that it's simply unacceptable to murder um, uh, uh, civilians, especially when they're blindfolded um, and have their hands tied, uh, tied behind their back. I do think it might also be an opportunity to change perception um, in terms of the delegitimizing the Putin regime. I think this is why you hear these calls for war crimes 
trial and investigations. Uh, it's a further effort, I think, to demonstrate that this is a leader that has really gone from somebody who initially tried to present himself as a modern statesman uh, to to a thug, a crook, um, and 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 the sort of street criminal bully uh, in the way that he grew up in his days in Saint Petersburg. Uh, so uh, I think this makes it increasingly difficult for Putin to have. Um, uh, to, to basically making sure you never you try to take the initiative from Putin and you make sure that Putin can never claim the moral high ground um, in these conversations. Uh, obviously, uh, it appears as if the Russians are retreating, reloaded, uh, reloading, replenishing. How concerned are you of what's to come? Are they going to come back stronger than ever and just try to take what they what they can? Well, the units that they just withdrew from, for instance, around Kiev and also more in the north, like in Cherniev, um, those are units that require significant repairs, significant amounts of new equipment, uh, and significant new uh, capacity, uh, not just on soldiers, but on the uh, on officers and exper- especially experienced officers, which the Russians have been losing in considerable numbers. So these are not units you can simply withdraw and redeploy, but there will be elements of these units that the Russians will try to redeploy, to try to reconstitute new units to shore up their capacity in the Donbass and Luhansk regions, which in many ways are sort of the key industrial heartland of Ukraine. So that's where an important part of the Ukrainian population lives, an important part of industrial capacity uh, that Russia is now trying to uh, accede to itself on the one hand, and on the other hand, trying to deprive Ukraine uh, of it, and in the process, trying to strengthen um, its negotiation, its its ne- negotiating position. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think there, there'll still be, I think, significant conflict, and the Russians will also continue to try to demoralize the Ukrainian population to try to play as strong as a hand as they can um, in upcoming, in, in, in what presumably will have to end with some sort of diplomatic uh, diplomatic settlement. The question is, of course, will the international community agree to Russia basically by force and by coercion, retaining the territories that it controls now the way it did essentially uh, retaining countries after the uh, after the Second World War? Uh, or will the West uh, uh, tie uh, sanctions relief, for instance, to Russia, uh, withdrawing some of its troops and, and, and rescinding their control over some of those territories? Christian Leprec with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute with an update on what is happening in Ukraine. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Have a lovely afternoon. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. As of this week, uh, people on t- in Ontario can wager on casino games, sporting events, and other gambling activities through online websites and smartphone apps from operators uh, that are registered to run activities in the provincial regulated market. There was a gray area here for the longest time. And we've certainly, uh, I guess there's about 25 operators that have been approved to uh, start as of Monday. Uh, obviously, the concern is what does this do for people who have gambling addictions and such? Others will say there's a gray market there. People want to find it. They can get it. And you might as well have uh, the resources coming into the province as opposed to leaving uh, in that respect. Let's bring in Dr. Nigel Turner, independent scientist with the Institute for Mental Health Policy Research at CAMH and assistant professor at the Dalla 
Toronto School of Public Health, University of Toronto, and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, I'm fine. Uh, How concerned? How concerned are you, doctor, of now online uh, gambling allowed in Ontario, first in in the country to do so? Uh, Are you concerned there's going to be an uptick? Well, there are both positive and negative aspects of this change. Because on the positive side, there was a legal gray market, um, and the government now has some power to regulate it, to require them to have information on problem gambling on their sites. Uh, there's, um, you could have the helpline and uh, treatment information on these websites. Uh, uh, lim- so what do you call it? Uh, deposit limits, um, personal quizzes on, on your gambling. So those are the positive things. The negative side is there's going to be a lot more advertising um, and a, a great legitimization of online gambling in the province. Um, and anytime you increase the availability and the ease with which people can gamble, there's a potential for uh, an increase in the number of people who are developing problems. And uh, gambling problems can be a very devastating disorder. People can lose their life savings, um, marriages can break up, um, people, uh, suicide is a, is a possible end consequence of uh, the losses that people experience. Are you concerned then, doctor, there's enough of a safety process in place uh, to manage that? Well, I don't know if I would say enough. There is a safety process. Uh, I don't know if it's really enough. I think more information should be uh, directed towards uh, combating some of the erroneous beliefs that people have about random chance, for example, that uh, they think uh, if they've lost, they're now due for win. You're never due for win. There's a house mm. edge. The games are set up to take your money away. And that kind of uh, information is typically not offered. You know, the they house edge is usually not revealed to people who are gambling. Um, so I think more information could be provided to the people who are playing. To uh, and The thing is, it would be a conflict of interest because they would be discouraging people from gambling excessively. Which, uh, which, however, means revenue. So um, I think more information, however, I think more information sh- should be um, directed at people to help them uh, know what the, uh, the stakes are. How do you know if you've got a gambling problem? Um, well, Where do you draw the line between entertainment and financial planning? Okay, well, okay. The, the, enter- the line would be when you are spending money you can't afford to lose, that's a gambling mm-hmm. problem. Now, it varies. Some people, you know, they, they may do lose a little more than they wanted to, but they're not losing their life savings. When you're starting to rack up loss after loss after loss debts uh, and getting into debts and spending money that should have been your retirement savings or your children's education or your college tuition, when you start to spend money you can't afford to lose, um, that's a problem. Uh, when people decide, oh, I've I don't have enough for my rent this month. I'm going to go to the casino to win the rest of my rent money. Mm. That's a problem. And um, people will, in desperation, will do a lot of things that uh, um, aren't good financially. 
Obviously, uh, difficult times right now, divisiveness coming out of a pandemic, uh, of inflation, people are, you know, are tight. Uh, is it is it times like this when this comes out? Do you see more of this during periods like this? Uh, to some extent, because the risk factors of, uh, for problem gambling, I, you know, there are a number of them, but one of them is depression, um, there's another is anxiety, uh, impulsivity, and as I said before, beliefs that you can beat the odds. Um, mm. and, and so when, when people are under stress, so psychological distress, they're anxious, they're depressed, uh, that is a, a risk, those are risk factors for getting into a gambling problem. And while people are gambling, all those problems disappear from their mind. They they mm. don't they they allows them to go on without thinking about those problems because it's a very powerful experience and it's a very absorbing experience. Uh, unfortunately, when they finish and they run out of money, they're in worse shape than they started out in, and uh, that's act- often when suicide occurs or thoughts of suicide because uh, people have lost money. They were. They were fine while they were gambling, while they had some money left. But once the money runs out, you can't you can't get back that uh, oblivion. Uh, advice for those that uh, that are questioning this. Uh, you mean for the the people? Yeah, who, who would be tempted? Who would be tempted to gamble? Okay. Yeah. Uh, just keep in mind this: it's entertainment. It's a way to lose money. It's a way to spend money. It's not a way to make money. Uh, it can be fun and exciting, but keep it under, uh, keep that in mind that this is uh, this is playing with your money. It's not a way to make money. And um, you know, if you if uh, and oh, and if you do find yourself tempted to you know lose your life savings, um, take a deep breath. In uh, uh, meditation is actually one of the ways that people can help uh, regain control of their lives. Um, Take a deep breath, breathe slowly, and and think it through. You know, think 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 what is you're doing. This is you're at a casino or you're online, and they're trying to make money from you. This is not a way to make money. So take a deep breath and relax, and let those thoughts pass through. It's entertainment, not financial planning. Dr. Nigel Turner yes. with his independent scientist with the Institute for Mental Health Policy Research at CAMH, assistant professor at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Hi. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, one of our favorite professors of political science from McMaster University, and talk a couple of things. Uh, I'll try to squeeze in what we can. Henry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I hope you are, too. Uh, I wanted to, Henry, ask you this question before we get into healthcare, uh, really quickly. Obviously, we've seen uh, some horrific images coming out of Ukraine in the last 24 hours. I remember reading about in the days of the Vietnam War, uh, the first televised war. Once certain images starting hitting started hitting North America, the attitude really changed. Do you think these images we're seeing in the Ukraine? Uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and them retreating and the rape and pillage is this going to change the discussion? Well, I certainly think uh, people who are, uh, you know, opposed to Russia's invasion are going to get much, much stronger in terms of their views in, in supporting the, uh, you know, the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian people, um, and ho- and and probably may have a big impact on people on countries where people are somewhat neutral because they're pulled 
you know, in different ways because of Soviet policies towards their countries, which might have been favorable, but uh, they see what's going on. Yeah, I think I think this has a real possibility. And, you know, you read my mind because I, when I was sitting here waiting for you to come on, I was thinking, aha, this is just like the Vietnam War. Mm. Once people started seeing the blood and guts uh, on the TV nightly news, boy, people changed right away. In the beginning, they didn't pay much attention. They figured, okay, the American, our troops are over there, but, you know, it's it's going to be okay. And then when they started seeing the the real blood and guts come on then, uh, and, and, and the casualties on both sides, uh, then they started getting very upset about it. It'll be interesting to see what happens here. All right, um, lots of chatter now about $10 a day daycare, about pharmacare, about dental care, uh, because we want something similar to what our health care system is. However, and these were all discussed long before the COVID-19 pandemic, but the COVID-19 pandemic ex- exposed a lot of weak links in our highly coveted, much sought-after health care system. Uh, nothing to do with the health care workers. They've been demanding money and help for for decades are you concerned that all the chatter about everything else we're kind of ignoring now that we're in the post-pandemic stage or endemic uh, that that people uh, aren't going to hold governments accountable and this isn't a provincial thing because we see it right across the country uh, is this going to be addressed between the provinces and the feds well yeah i i think people health care is terribly important i mean i've looked at surveys about what people really want out of government for about 30 to 40 years, you know, and they constantly, these surveys come out. And the, and the thing that I always just tell my students, I says, I ask them, what do you think people are complaining the most about governments? And of course, the students are young, they're healthy and all this stuff. And they'll say, oh, the economy or this or that, you know, environment and what have you. I said, no, you look at the numbers, the majority, the majority says we want better health care. And that and and they you know when when they don't get when people don't get it they're very angry and the problem for governments is better health care is expensive, building a proper hospital, having the you know the technicians the doctors the nurses, the you know the, all the equipment it's expensive, and it takes time and uh, it's just it, and so anybody's in office you know politicians in office said well maybe I can fudge through things and by the time people really get upset about the health care I'm out of office well you know sooner or later the shoe drops and uh, and you know and some people get you know get stuck with uh, you know being criticized saying aren't, why aren't you ready why why can't we get uh, this that and the other thing which we think we ought to do and uh, have and uh, yeah it's a problem I think it's going to be more important in the provincial election I think it's going to be more important throughout the uh, throughout the country is that basically you know it's not only the virus that we've been fighting but the thing is we've had to push aside all the usual medical stuff that yeah. people get and you know we know there's people are there's delay delaying cancer treatments uh you know diagnostic work uh sh- you know shots for other things that kids ought to have you know that when they go to school uh you know a lot of that's being being uh, you know being put off and i just think you know, people, you know, essentially, you know, are going to say, hey, we got to have that. And uh, they're going to be angry. Uh, we always seem to tend uh, to, to, to see it, uh, look at other shiny things rather than fixing what we have. Uh, many before the pandemic said we got health care, then we, sh- we should be having pharmacare. We should be having dental care. And who doesn't want all of that? But why are we modeling these systems after a system that is obviously failing? Should we not be addressing the health care system before we figure out what a good template is for pharmacare and dental 
care and and the rest of it well yeah it's a it, it, it's it's a real big chunk of money to do all of that stuff and so there may be real pressure on the federal government depending on you know uh the, the, the how the provinces go after them because they're feeling the heat from their people they may say hey uh, federal government. I know you saw, you've got a pack up there, but how about delaying a little bit all these other things and and give us the money for the you know for the basics that we don't have money for. So that's quite possible. That may be you know in a, over the next year might might come might really come up. So I, I I wouldn't be surprised if it does. Do you think you'll see more on health care in the federal budget? Uh, most immediately, well, I mean, nothing more than they've sort of said they were going to do or put out, you know, put out, put out uh, sort of views of what they're likely to do. So I don't think we're going to see anything new or dramatic. I think if they're going to put out more, uh, more to the provinces, they're going to have, they're going to do it through a conference because, you know, the premier is going to want to call in all the premiers and say, okay, I'll give you more money, but we got to have an agreement that you're going to spend it on what you say you want to expend it on. This is sometimes one of the biggest problems. If you give somebody money cause, and they give you a good argument why they ought to have it, and then you give them the money and you turn your, round, turn your back, and the next thing you know they're spending it on something else. So that, that, the, the, the federal government's always worried about that sort of thing. So I think a conference has to come first and get, get buy-in from all the provinces. I had an interesting conversation with the head of the Canadian Dental Association last week on, on, on dental care, and he said the provinces have great systems in place the problem is they don't have enough funding to keep them going mm-hmm. so again that takes the pre- and and as premier horgan said out uh, in out west in bc uh leading the other provinces on this they all have great programs that best suit their people the problem is they don't have enough finances and that's up to the federal government to either somehow inject some private money into this or federal money no yeah, well, when we have to just look historically, I mean, eventually, when these, when our whole Medicare system was set up, the view was that the federal government would pay half. Going to pay the half, shot, yeah. And they yeah. don't pay that. And through the years, they've chipped away, and they said, okay, the provinces have to put in more, have to put in more. Well, the, I don't think the pro, you know, it's very difficult for the provinces to make up the money that they're not getting from the federal government. Yeah. The federal government really has got to deliver more money to the provinces for health care. Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Henry, always fun. Thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, same to you, Scott. Dr. Lubomir Luchik is with us, Professor with the Royal Military College of Canada and is here now. Doctor, thanks so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. So earlier on today, uh, the Ukrainian President Zelensky addresses the United Nations Security Council, basically a, a pretty stern conversation and says, where's the, or asks, where's the peace and security? Uh, why is Russia even a member? How much of an impact does or, or the significance of this speech to the UN? Well, I think very obviously President Zelensky has assumed the mantle of being one of the most honorable men in the world today in terms of political leaders. He's demonstrated it time and time again, and I think he's uh, speaking the truth to power, if you like. I mean, he's at the focal point of the world, the United Nations, in terms of a forum, and he's saying to their faces, where are you as we stand in defense of liberty, democracy, freedom, human rights, all the things that we like to speak about, and I think in many ways we try to achieve it, but the reality of it is the Ukrainians are dying every day now. They're being slaughtered. They're being subjected to war crimes, as we saw in Buchach and Erpin and other places in recent days. I mean, some of those shocking images. 
And you, you saw Zelensky visiting Bucha just the other day and crying. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, you know, Putin is sitting at a long table telling his generals to advance here or there or everywhere. Um, I, you know, the, the contrast between the, the morality and the conviction and the honorableness of Zelensky and, frankly, just about every other leader in the West that I can think of uh, is remarkable. Uh, there are still people running around saying we should employ diplomatic means and, and we should talk to the Russians and so on. Look, the, the only thing, and Zelensky says this, Ukrainians don't want boots on the ground from the West anymore. It's not going to happen. We know there's not going to be a no-fly zone. All that stuff is what the West should have done, but it didn't. Fine. Just provide the military hardware the Ukrainians need to defend themselves, and they'll take care of the job. They, they can, they've been proving time and time again over the last several weeks that they can not only blunt the Russian aggressors, but they can actually push them back. But they need the weapons. And I think basically between his moral argument that the West needs to step up and actually defend the values it proclaims, the other side of that is, if you're not going to do it, at least give us the tools that we need to defend ourselves. A lot here think that we are giving them the tools. Are we just well, simply we not giving them enough? Of course we are, but you will remember very clearly, I'm sure, that just a month ago we were saying no lethal weaponry. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was a month ago. Now, of course, since then, they've been giving them, you know, absolutely, they've been giving them anti-armor missiles. They've been giving them uh, javelins and stingers, anti-aircraft, anti-missile platforms, all that stuff. But they need a lot more because they're on their own. They, it's It's... Ukraine against Russia. Russia's the invader. Ukrainians aren't Russians. Even Russian-speaking Ukrainians don't want to be Russians. And they've, in recent days, been subjected to atrocities like we haven't seen since the Holocaust. Um, you know, and it's, it's kind of, you know, I saw a cartoon came around today, Never Again. And, you know, a long list of Never Agains going back through Somalia and um, Armenia and the, and the Holocaust and the Holodomor and so on. I mean, death saying never again. They keep saying never again, never again. Well, it's happening again. And, and we're sitting here going, oh, that's terrible. How can we send them uh, some more blankets or Band-Aids? Hmm. I mean, what? they what? don't need that. So we've them. all seen the images over the last 24 hours, and they're yeah. absolutely horrific. horrific. Uh, the U.N. saw a uh, an abbreviated version of that again today. Again, what are the significance of seeing these images now? I think it makes it very clear that this isn't uh, the kind of fake staged event that Mr. Putin engages in or that his little, frankly, I'm going to say it, his little bum boy Lavrov says, um, you know, oh, this is all fake news. It's not fake news. You can see for yourself the bodies on the streets, the hands tied behind me. So there is no doubt as to what happened and that it happened in the last few days and that it's a war crime, a crime against humanity. Now, you know, you and I may have an argument, and it's a legitimate sort of philosophical legal argument about genocide and all that stuff. But there's no doubt these are war crimes. These are crimes against humanity. President Biden has, you know, called the pot black. He said, Mr. Putin is a war criminal and needs to be brought to justice. So, the, so then my question is, okay, you, you know, it's not like Putin's going to turn himself in and say, okay, take me to trial, see how that plays out. Yeah. Uh, but why haven't we sanctioned Putin yet? Why is it that we have not sanctioned Vladimir Putin, the architect of all this horror, of all this misery? And we keep saying, well, we're going to put sanctions on these 10 people over here and there's some oligarchs over here. Oh, we seized a yacht over here. Well, that's all good. But why is Russia still 
able to sell oil natural gas to the West? Why are we fueling genocide or atrocities perpetrated against Ukraine? It's, re it's just a remarkable. Yes, I know the Germans might not have hot tea, or they might not get quite as warm a shower as they might want. Well, you know, <laughs> Ukrainians are dying. Why Germans and Italians and and Frenchmen are standing around talking about how inconvenient gas prices are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just, it's like, you know, it's, it's like standing by and watching another Holocaust and going, well, that's really too bad. We can't do much. What does, what does this do for the future of Russia, even beyond this warfare, whenever it ends? What's a win for Putin here? What does this do for the future of Russia? Oh, well, I, I don't think there is a win in this for Mr. Putin. Mr. Putin's delusional vision of a kind of Russian mid or a kind of a Russian empire based on Belarus and Ukraine and Russia all coming together is forever shattered. That's the old Humpty Dumpty thing. You know, Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall and all the king's horses and all the king's men ain't going to put Humpty together again. Uh, Ukraine will never be part of Russia now. And I think Ukrainians have demonstrated. Belarus, I'm not so sure about. As for the Russian Federation, I think it's finished. I mean, even the very idea of a quote-unquote federation dominated by Russians that extends over one-sixth of the Earth's land surface is chock-full of all sorts of natural resources that are highly desired by the People's Republic of China, India, and other powers in the region. Putin's army is clearly inept, and, you know, the second biggest army in the world, well, you know, it's being beaten by a much smaller army that's committed to the defense of a homeland. So I think the Russian Federation, thankfully, will fall apart, and it deserves to, uh, not just because of this war, but it's always been a kind of a prison of nations. And, you know, you just ask a Kalmuk or a Chechen or a Tatar, many other dozens of nationalities, whether they find themselves free and equal citizens in the Russian Federation? And the answer is no. Um, there's a lot of already regional tension emerging within the Russian Federation. And this disastrous, unnecessary, unprovoked war against Ukraine, supposedly a war of, you know, brother against brother, which it's not, but that's the, the way they like to play it, is exposed, you know, the emperor. And he has no clothes. And people are, you know, you've seen all the Ukrainian stories about driving tanks away, pulling them away with tractors and all this kind of stuff. There's a certain amount of humor. It's black humor in this war. But really, if you think a little deeper about it, it's evidence that the emperor, the Tsar, Mr. Putin, has no clothes. He is alone on the world stage. Russia is a pariah state. It's being bled uh, economically. And, you know, it frankly should collapse because it has shown itself to be an enemy of the rules-based international order. And I know people say, well, it's Putin's war. It's not the Russian nation's war. Well, you know, they're going to have to get rid of him. And so far... According to everything I see, 60 to 70 percent of the people of the Russian Federation support Mr. Putin. Okay, good. They stand with him. They can fall with him. Dr. Lubomir Luchik with us, professor with the Royal Military College of Canada, talking about the current situation in Ukraine and uh, what the future may hold. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Fascinating discussion. We'll continue. Uh, thanks. Be well. Happy to do it again. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Full newscast coming up at 6 o'clock. Right after that, the Scott Radley Show. You can hear him there or read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing okay, Scott. How are you? 
Uh, good, but boy, sad news today coming yeah. out, and yeah. we're we're just we the details are still um, uh, well a little sketchy at this time. But Boris Brot, uh, the victim of uh, a hit and run accident, or I would say an accident uh, if it's a hit and run uh, earlier today, and uh, again SIU involved, and there's a, a big police investigation, and I guess a couple of crashes. Uh, related to this, but my goodness, I remember when I first came to Hamilton, my twenty uh, some odd years ago. Uh, just the impact uh, uh, over the years this man has had on on music and culture, and especially educating kids on that in this uh, city. Very, very tragic to hear. Well, I mean, look, he, he is. Um, it, it's it's no exaggeration to refer to him as world renowned. I mean, he yeah. is a guy that has yeah. a footprint um all over the place and the fact you know and i don't want to be self-deprecating and be like oh you know hamilton's not what the fact that he set up shop in hamilton yeah. and stayed it's a big here, deal it was a big deal he's not originally from here he's from montreal and he came mm-hmm. here and he stayed here and this was his base but again it's not an exaggeration to say that he was a a sought-after conductor around the world and worked around the world and always came back here and you know, there are there are times when I say self-deprecating. There are times when I think we we do that in this city. We look down at ourselves, or we think, mm-hmm. oh, you know, we're the the little brother to Toronto, or whatever else. He was. You know, I I generally reject those things because I mean, those of us who live here, we've chosen to live here. He was one of the examples that you could point to as a reminder that you know what. It, people don't just leave here they come here and brought credibility and culture to the city as a result of course of course absolutely and and, you know it's um and the thing about him that was that i always found you know you always whenever you're dealing with people who have that kind of platform and that kind of reputation and again i mean he would get calls from you know big wigs in the classical music industry from around the world and then I'd call him up and I, you know, and want to talk about something. Yeah, like, yeah sure. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. You know, there, are yeah. Some, there are some people who become very famous and forget who they were. And especially with such a, dis- especially with such a distinguished career. I mean, but sure. he was so accessible. There are some people, as I say, who become very big and forget who they were beforehand. And then there's some. There's people like Boris Brot who. You could call up and say, hey, can you come on the show for a few minutes today to talk about whatever? And, you know, it was like, yeah, of course, sure, happy to do it. And I don't think he ever, I mean, we didn't call him every week, but I don't think he ever said no. And I was always enthusiastic about, which is probably if if you had to pick out one word to describe him, and I mean, you can talk talented and genius and all that, enthusiasm, enthusiastic would probably be the one. He was always Every time I talked to him and every time I ever saw him being interviewed, he was just bubbling with enthusiasm yeah, about whatever yeah. it was he was working on. 
Very true. And, uh, and an inspiration to many young musicians. Our condolences, of course, to his family and close friends. Uh, as we find out more and more about this, we'll certainly bring uh, the information to you. Another thing I wanted to ask you before we leave, uh, we, we, we saw the, uh, the horrific images in the last 24 hours of what's been happening as Russia's retreating and regrouping, mm-hmm. whatever they're doing. Uh, I was talking to, uh, earlier on with Henry Jasek about this, and I remember reading reports how when images came out of the Vietnam War, it was sort of the first televised war that was brought into living rooms, that it really changed the attitude of North America, well, the world for that matter. Uh, do you think these images will have the same impact, and this could be a turning point in all of this? See, I, I, I'm not sure that they are apples and apples, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. The, the images out of Vietnam showed the Americans suddenly as not necessarily the good guys. Yeah. It changed the public's attitude towards the project that was going on over there and made the Americans question whether we should be there. I think already most of the people in the world already believe that this is horrendous and what Putin is doing is horrendous. I'm not sure. This may crystallize their feelings. This may put an image in their face to bolster what it is they feel, but I don't know that it changes anything because they already believe this. And so, you know, this to me, if nothing else, um, just changes, not doesn't change, affirms the resolve of people to say, you know, when this thing is done, and we're going to talk about this in the show later on, when this thing is done, somehow the Russian leadership, Putin and his cronies below him, need to be somehow brought to justice. How that's going to be possible, and that's actually what we're talking about, is can they someday, when this is over, be brought to justice? But I think that's what this is going to do. It's going to make people say, yeah, you know what, you've done this, now, how are we going to get you to stand in a dock like, you know, any of the Nazi people mm. who did it in the in Nuremberg once upon a time? Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. And, of course, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave for being a part of the show and you as well. And as always, we leave it to you, and in this case, Sandra, to have the last word. So what I'm feeling really strongly about today is uh, mothers and motherhood and children and the fact that the um, you know middle class is dying and everything's getting so expensive. And, you know, I think families are really struggling just to, to put food on the table. And in my case, I know of a, you know, a father who's a nurse and the mother is home and they're struggling. I think $10 a day for daycare is a part of the equation, but I think uh, one parent needs the option of staying home for two grand a month. I think um, that's probably even better for the, econ- you know, not the economy, but cheaper than giving people 10 bucks a day. Anyways, we need to do something for mothers and children and families. Thank you. 99. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.